whether that's a beneficial workout or not a beneficial workout. Um, and I know that some coaches prescribe those. I personally never do those and I never prescribe those mainly for the reason that your LT1 is not static when you're riding. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today we're talking about if at all your training should differ if you're a featherweight cyclist, the differences between amateurs and pros when it comes to zone two rides, and how to overcome getting dropped early in races and group rides. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. If you haven't heard, there's a new flavor available in the Endurance Formula mix, and if you're one for playing to the seasons, then head over to flowformulas.com today to check out the new Apple Cider Blend. Use the discount code IgnitionPodcast10 for 10% off your first order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions for the show, drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast. All right, let's get into it. All right, so this first question uh, is an interesting one coming in from Theo from the UK. Uh, Theo says, I'm 23 and I recently started listening to the podcast as well as Bonk Bros and have enjoyed going back through some of your older episodes. I've been road cycling for about six months, though I haven't been able to start any proper training or get a full-time routine as I've been finishing my master's degree. I've also been held back by some IT band and knee issues, which have been preventing me from running, which I used to do fairly frequently. The issues on the de- are on the decline, though, and I'm about to finish my master's, so I'm going to have more time to train, and once I can get some money from work, I'll probably start some coaching. In the meantime, I have a question about weight and how weight should shape your training plans, if at all. My question is about starting training as a very light cyclist. I'm about 52 kilos and have always naturally had a very low BMI and high metabolism. I used to play a lot of football, American soccer, when I was younger and would think of myself reasonably fit. My best 5K time is about 21 minutes for context. However, being much lighter than average, I'm obviously lacking the power that even beginner riders are more likely to have. I don't have any racing in mind for the future. However, my goal would be to improve my overall cycling ability with maybe the hopes of doing some races next summer. I have a power meter, so when I have the time, I will be able to train properly with power. However, I haven't tested my FTP yet, although I expect it to be quite low. Is there any specific advice you'd recommend for lighter riders in this position? I've heard other talks on increasing or that increasing both volume and frequency is important uh, for people at the start who are beginning their training but are there any recommendations for optimizing training for someone with my build would lifting be a good way to improve my physical strength before focusing on intervals for example equally i'm sure it'd be interesting for the audience to hear your advice for people on the other end of the spectrum getting into cycling who may be on the heavier side thanks and keep it up theo from the uk cool um First, I want to say... So this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. First, I feel like I want to say being so new to cycling, like, don't, like, just no stress. Kind of take some of that off of you because we're all here, Do it, no matter how long we've been cycling, we're all trying to do the same thing, and that's to increase our power production. Um, I think you're coming at it from the better side of things, um, being on the the lighter side. And as you go through this training, you know, your body's going to adapt and you're going to see progress. Um, so I just want to start by saying that in, in simplest forms, you're going to see that power start to come. Um, 
as you start structured training. Um, but as far as strength, the strength side of things, yeah, absolutely. Like that's going to play a huge role in power production. Going through a proper strength build where you start, do a few weeks of, you know, muscular strength, which means you're doing lighter weight and, um, more repetitions to kind of get your body prepped for that because the muscular endurance supports strength, which then supports speed, which supports power production. So if you go through a proper strength build over, you know, let's say 16 weeks, you're going to see huge gains from that. Um, yeah. 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 I agree. And I like that you, you prefaced what you were saying with, uh, kind of taking some of the emphasis or pressure off of, uh, trying to, optimize your body composition like you know first and foremost it's like let's just get some time on the bike uh mm-hmm. you know cool th- cool thing with with cycling or most most sports and in, in, especially endurance sports in general is your your body kind of tends to begin that optimization on its own the more stimulus that it experiences <clears throat> so it's going to be hard for you to for your body to like really optimize you, its composition if you're not consistently training so i think that's kind of step one is like you know, getting into some consistent training, allowing your body to kind of naturally absorb some of those adaptations and make those adaptive composition um, change, changes on its own. And then, you know, that like, you know, th- there there may come a time where, yeah, you you might want to consider uh, different tactics in order to to try and take on a little bit more weight. Most people are on the other side of it, where they're trying to actually lose weight in order to balance out their body composition and, and power to weight ratio. Um, you know, but, but there's plenty of light riders out there, you know, look at some of the world tour, mm-hmm. uh, ro- road racers, for example, um, or even just looking at some of the top women in the world, you know, for the most part, women are typically going to have, you know, a little bit less body mass than, than their male counterparts would. And there's plenty of insanely strong women out there who probably are similar in this, you know, 52, 55, uh, kilo range. Um, mm-hmm. for example, like Tom Pitcock, he's like, he's on, oh, he's yeah. somewhere in the fifties, like 55 to 58 kilos. And dude puts out massive power and he's world champion, you know? So you mm-hmm. definitely, it's a great sport, honestly, like it's better than, you know, what would be the American football, you know, or, or, you know, some of these other kind of, uh, mainstream sports where, we're being smaller isn't necessarily an advantage. Um, but the cool thing is with cycling, you know, a lot of times being smaller, lighter has it, its advantages, but there's just certain areas of the sport where you, you know, you'll, you'll get more of that advantage. Um, but you know, the big thing is I, and, and I kind of emphasize this with most of my athletes is focus more on quality training and, power optimization rather than body composition optimization you know like for sure as long as you're always focusing on trying to improve your power that power to weight ratio is going to improve as well sure it's nice to be able to lose you know five ten kilos in the process and kind of hit it from both ends but sometimes you don't you don't end up actually meeting in the middle because you end up losing strength in the process now i don't think that's going to be the case here i think uh, i think for theo in this case as he trains more and then, you know, eventually if he does take on more body mass, he'll likely see an increase in, uh, in power as well. Uh, will that outweigh the, you know, that, that power to weight equation, uh, depends, but, but I would say probably, you know, in most cases, I think you're better off trying to focus on increasing power than you are trying to like decrease or maintain weight. Um, 
you know, in, in that process. Mm-hmm. And also important to note, um, just make sure that you're fueling your, your rides and, um, your recovery after. So immediately after a high intensity or, you know, high caloric burning ride, um, just make sure that you're replenishing and, you know, your body wants to thrive. So kind of piggybacking off of what Adam was saying, like your body composition will change to suit the activity that you're doing. So as you know, just making sure that you're, um, staying on top of, you know, the energy demands and, and protein intake, all of that. I don't really necessarily know that you're going to put on a few kilos, but yeah, you're, you're may see your body composition change. Yeah. So Dylan, you just hopped on here. Uh, the, the question that came through was, uh, from a listener named Theo and, and they're just kind of starting their cycling journey and they're on the lighter side of things. So he's 52 kilos, which is around 115 pounds, I think. Uh, so he was asking about specific training that he should do to either, you know, help improve his body composition or to account for his, you know, lighter weight body composition. Uh, for example, he was wondering if there's anything he should do before he even starts interval training to like help improve strength off the bike, uh, to help with some of those demands. So this is a person that wants to gain weight. Maybe not necessarily wants to gain weight, but wants to know if being lighter, uh, they should account for their training in a different, or they should count for their, their weight and adapt their training accordingly. Um, I don't, I don't see any reason to, to be honest with you. Um, I think regardless of what weight you are, you, I, I wouldn't give different training to if, if let's just hypothetically say that two people have the exact same goal, like they're both training for whatever race it is. It doesn't even matter, but they have the exact same goal. Just one weighs 50 kilos and the other one weighs 80 kilos. I don't think I would necessarily give them different training. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, and, and, you know, we, we see this as, you know, it's kind of common for people, whether they're just starting or maybe they took a break, like off-season break or an extended break. They think they need to, like, do something before they start training to, like, make their training go better. But really all you're doing is delaying your training progression. Like, if you j- just start training, you know, and, and that's the best way that you're going to improve your training long-term is, like, to just start and like, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing better you can do for your training unless you're like healing a, an injury or, you know, have, have other health issues. But, uh, there's no reason to just delay the training and start doing other things. Like, you know, we're trying to get better on the bike. You should be getting on the bike. Yeah, exactly. I think the most important thing that he said was that he struggles with sometimes an IT knee band is- or IT band knee issue during running. So I think we need to address that in training and doing going back to the strength training and you know making sure we're doing some core stability, single leg stability stuff, um, and then also incorporating like some type of mobility foam rolling stretching routine to make sure we keep that in check. For That's, sure, I would say. The only thing that yeah, really and, needs and to just be remember too, you know, so, sometimes people will lean on running because it's a little more efficient. You know, if they've only got thirty minutes to go do a workout, um, you know, in this case, I wouldn't keep doing an activity that you're prone to injury with. So, you know, maybe this is your chance to just hop on the trainer for thirty minutes, you know, and, and kind of get a, a short spin in, in in order to help kind of jumpstart some of that training. Mm-hmm. If we go back to Dylan's hypothetical situation of the two athletes, different weights, uh, 
I agree with what he said. Like training them shouldn't necessarily look like different. But a conversation that I would have with those two athletes is like finding events that suit them individually. Uh, yeah, like in the big picture, grand scheme of things, you want to do what you're going to enjoy the most. I think that's really important. But I also think that there's a lot to be said about doing what you would be the best at as well. And so looking at your your natural body composition and then thinking, okay, realistically, can I weigh 50 kilos and be a professional crit racer? Uh, it's like, I don't know about that. Like, it's going to be hard to beat some of those big dudes in a sprint uh, in a crit. But there are all kinds of events where light, like being lighter would be a would work in his advantage. And I would, I think as a coach, I would, I would kind of point him towards those events because he's going to have more success in those events than maybe something where a, a, a bigger person would, would do well. I mean, I'm kind of going through that same thing right now with I'm, going, I'm kind of stepping away from racing and stepping into gravel racing. And a big part of that decision is I think physiologically I'll be a better gravel racer. And that was a big part of making that decision. For sure. So yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and to to piggyback off that, uh, Theo lives in the UK, and I, I know in the UK, hill climbs are like really popular out there, where they're anywhere from two to five minutes, super steep, mostly road uh, climbs that you know people will just race up. Uh, and the steeper the terrain, the more that power to weight ratio is advantageous. So maybe that's something to even consider. Um, you know, is, is looking at some of those events and they're probably pretty easy, you know, low barrier entry. You don't have to have a ton of fitness per se. I mean, you know, you're just climbing up a short, steep hill. Uh, obviously the more competitive you want to be, the more fit you have to be, but, uh, that could be something to look into too. Cause that would be right up your alley. All right, let's, uh, let's move on here. We got a question that came in from Callan. Uh, Kellen wants to know, do fitter riders require lower endurance zone power targets in relation to FTP compared to lower level riders? For example, I followed Dylan and quite a lot of pros on Strava and upon observing their average power for their endurance rides, I can't help but wonder if their zone two resides at a lower percentage of FTP than most would think. For example, I know Dylan can do 402 watts for 20 minutes, which would give him an FTP of around 380 watts. As a typical touted zone two power is anywhere between 60 to 75% of FTP, I'd expect him to average at least 230 watts for his endurance rides, but he doesn't. He seems to ride around 190 to 210 watts. Same goes for Keegan Swenson, who has an even higher FTP. Of all the pro riders I looked at, they all seem to be right around 50 to 60% of FTP for most of their endurance days. Why is this? At a measly threshold of around 300 watts, uh, and 63 kilos, I tend to ride my zone two rides around to 190 to 210 watts, which is similar to Dylan. However, Dylan is a lot stronger than I am. So what gives, what does the percent, does the percentage of FTP calculation only work for riders of lower level? So if anything, the percentage of one, as somebody gets fitter, the percentage of one's FTP where, um, you know, lactate turn point one or ventilatory threshold one, like the edge of zone two lies is only a higher percentage of their FTP, not a lower percentage of their FTP. So it's actually the opposite. Um, as far, so I think, I think this person understands what I'm saying. It, 
although you may observe these fast riders riding at a lower percentage of their FTP, the top of their zone two is actually probably higher than the average rider. Um, as far as observing these fast riders, and I'm, you know, I'm honored that he put, put me as an example, along with Keegan Swenson, <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as observing these fast riders riding at a lower percentage of their FTP for these zone two rides, I think it probably just has to do with the sheer volume that some of these riders do. I mean, when you're riding 20 to 30 hours per week, uh, you pick quite a low percentage of your zone two to do most of that work in because it's kind of what you have to do. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And and sometimes looking at average power is a little bit misleading too, especially if a rider lives somewhere that's pretty hilly, because what you're going to get is there, you know, that rider is going to try staying in zone two on the uphills, but then if they're coasting all the downhills, that's going to really skew their average power lower. You know, so like Dylan, for example, if you're if you're doing 200 watts average power for a five hour zone two ride, your normalized is probably 220 or 230. You know, it's so like if you look at that normalized, it's probably a little closer to like the middle of your zone two range than looking at average power. Whereas like for me, like when I go out and do endurance rides where I live, it's not super hilly. So my average power and my normalized power are usually like within a couple percent because I'm pedaling the whole time. So, so you got to take that into account too. Average power doesn't always tell the whole story. Um, but I, I think, I think Dylan, what you're saying there is the pro riders are just being more conservative with their endurance riding powers. It's not, it's not that mm-hmm. they have to do, it's not that they, they couldn't do more. It's just that with your, when you're doing that much volume week in, week out, like you just have to be more conservative with your pacing mm-hmm. and, uh, the more time they, you know, as, as long as you're spending time in that zone too, you're, you're kind of have the free will to accumulate as much volume as you want. But as soon as you start mm-hmm. creeping up close to that LT1, that's when it's going to start building up more chronic fatigue. And that's, that's when your, your training is going to start to fall off. So it seems like, you know, pro riders know this or their coaches know this. So they're just trying to be, you know, a little more conservative with some of their efforts too. Yeah. So I, I think we, uh, Adam, you and I were discussing this with an athlete recently about whether or not we should be doing these long rides where you're right below LT1, like you're right on that edge of your endurance zone. Um, you know, if you're if the edge of your zone two is 260 watts, you need to be at 255, right? Like right there. Uh, whether that's a beneficial workout or not a beneficial workout. Um, and I know that some coaches prescribe those. I personally never do those and I never prescribe those mainly for the reason that your LT1 is not static when you're riding. It's actually a, it's a moving target. Your LT1 in hour one of a five hour ride might be 260 Watts, but in hour five, it could have dropped to 230. Um, And I would much rather, I would much rather be like you said, conservative and actually make sure that I'm staying in zone two by picking just either a number that's in the middle of the range or maybe even the lower end of the range. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. How, how closely do you even look at power on zone two rides versus just riding off of feel or, or maybe even heart rate? I stare um, at my power the whole time. <laughs> I was literally yeah. about to say that Dylan stares at his power the whole time. That's exactly what I was going to say. 220 all day. <laughs> 
I think it depends on the nature of the ride as well. Um, how long it's going to be. Um, if it's going to be like a five hour endurance ride to me, endurance is more of like for that, especially if it's going to be off-road, if it's going to be a gravel or mountain bike ride, five hours is like, all right, you're going out to get five hours in the saddle. And I want to like be pushing consistent pressure on the pedals, but like, you know, that again, that average power, probably will be on the lower end of endurance, but the normalized should be in the right spot. So, um, yeah, I would say more, I look more at heart rate for the longer off-road rides, but if it's on the road, then yeah, strictly power. I give myself a heart rate ceiling. I kind of go based off feel, but then I also just make sure I don't go over my heart rate ceiling. And for me and for the athletes that I coach, I just put that number at 75% of max heart rate. So if Easy math. If your max heart rate is about 200, which mine is about 200, that would put my heart rate ceiling at about 150. And I just make sure to stay below that. And like if it creeps up to that on the hills and stuff, like that's all right. Uh, but for like a large majority of my life, I'm sitting at like 140, you know, so I'm not even close to that 150. And that seems to be, and that also I think accounts for what Dylan is talking about, the moving target, because naturally your body's going to have cardiac drift. And so, what happens when cardiac drift is like happening on five is your heart rate might stay at 140 the whole time for that five hour ride, but your power is probably going to be decreasing throughout the run. So that's kind of what I do to stay below that LT1 that we're talking about. It seems to be, seems to work. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you're, you're talking about put setting a ceiling, not like a target, you know? So Correct. that's like, you don't want to ever go over 75% of max heart rate. And it doesn't mean that you're sitting at 73% of max heart rate the whole time. It's like, now you're probably more like 65 to 70% of max, of max heart rate. And then, you know, trying to just keep an eye on it going uphill or something to make sure yeah. it's not going above that. Yeah. I, like that. I don't know like how much truth there is to this, but I remember hearing like more so on recovery days, but I think maybe it applies for endurance is like how, like if you go for a KOM or a Strava segment in the middle of your endurance ride is like, is that going to ruin the whole ride? Um, I don't know. But for me, it's like, I just want to stay in that. If, if my goal for the day, like if my training goal for an endurance ride is to accumulate time in an endurance, I, I've just, I, I don't know. Those aren't the days to do Strava segments. I mean, you're probably not going to ruin the whole ride, but you're, you're definitely not helping it. I don't think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I, I like that. Uh, you know, hat having some intentionality behind those rides. And I think that actually helps to bring a little more purpose in, in maybe motivation to those rides too. Uh, Cause they're not just like go out and it's just a free for all. Like, ah, I just, you know, I'm going to go ride for five hours today. Whatever happens, happens. It's like, no, there's a pretty specific goal here, which is to try and accumulate as much time in that endurance zone as possible. So that should be your target and that should be your goal. Not, Strava KOMs or power PRs or anything like that. Like save that for your hard days. All right, let, let's hit one more here. W- one more quick one before we hop off. Uh, so this one comes from Mike. Mike says, in gravel races, I very often get popped from the front group on the first sustained climb we get to. I live in Minnesota, so sustained climbing for us is about three minutes. So the effort is pretty high. That might be five minutes into a ride or 20 miles. Uh, so it's it's not just a matter of getting warmed up better. Getting dropped is one thing, but when this happens, I usually am close to making it and then I'm the last person to get dropped, so I end up solo in between the front group and a chase group. 
Being so close makes it even more deflating. Any tips other than HTFU or go do more three to five minute VO2 max intervals? Thanks, Mike. What he is describing is exactly what happened to me at Gravel Nats. I was the first one popped off the main group and was like sitting there by myself in no man's land for a couple minutes. And I like decided to wait for the second group, but it would have been so much better to have just been in the front group. Like that's happened to me multiple times this year. And I mean, I've kind of had the same thought you just said of like, I just need to be able to, yeah, the VO2, I think, I mean, I think he's kind of answering his own question in my opinion is like, that's when this has happened to me, that's what I've felt like is lacking is that five minute power that I need to have to like get over these little climbs that kind of break up the group. Um, you could also like positioning is probably a big thing. You know, if, if you're positioned more at the, at the front of that group, you can do what I like to call the waterfall, which I think a lot of people call it that, but <laughs> I like to call, I think that's, I don't know. It reminds me of a mullet because of the Kentucky waterfall. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> you waterfall climb or you start at the front. And that gives you a buffer so that even if you do climb the hill a little slower than this, you won't end up dropped. You'll just end up in the group. So what it looks like in a race is like you start in the top 10. As the climb progresses, you lose a position here and there, but you stay in the front. I've done that pretty successfully in some of the races and stuff where I knew I was going to get dropped soon. So like I just go to the very front of the base of the climb. And I'm like barely hanging on to the back of the group. So, yeah, that's that's another strategy that you can deploy if you know you're going to lose time. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, another thing to keep in mind, too, is it sounds like this is a pretty regular occurrence for Mike. You know, they, they say that very often it's that first sustained climb where they get dropped. So, for one, it's hard to know what happens with that group after that first climb because, Mike, you haven't been there. Um you know, but, but since you're anticipating it, like you probably know, like, okay, here comes the climb, like here comes my time, I'm going to get popped. And because of that, you might be hitting the bottom of the climb a little bit too hard so that when you get to the top of the climb, you're completely exhausted and have nothing left in the tank. And usually what happens with these climbs is like the pace is pretty high up the front side, but then kind of levels out and, you know, maybe even comes down a little bit off the backside, you know, or you've got a roller where it's, you've got a descent off the backside and you get that chance to take a break. So, you know, in this case here, like maybe you're better off holding back a little bit on the bottom part of the, you know, bottom third of the climb so that way you can have more consistent power through, you know, through the top of the climb and even some power in the bank where you can pedal up and over and down the backside. And like, that's your chance. Like maybe you get dropped by 10, 15 feet or, you know, 20 meters, but you have a chance because you've, you've got power left in the tank. So to, so you, you can use it on the backside or, you know, on the flat on the, on the top to try and reel the group back in. But if you're like just jamming as hard as you possibly can from the start, you're probably fading by the time you get to the top. And, and by that point, it's just like, you've got nothing left in the tank in order to, to bring that group back. Yeah. Have you ever done a race with a, with a rider who looks like they're getting dropped on every single climb and then they end up winning? I mean, that's probably more, that's probably more, you know, a tactical thing on their part. Like they're not, they're definitely strong enough to go over the climb with the group, but they're being very tactical with it. Literally Um, what happened at BWR Kansas, the guy who won, I had like discounted him all day because it looked like he was a bigger dude. Like, like he was the biggest dude in the group. So I'm like, oh, he'll get popped on the climbs and he won. 
<laughs> I was like, dang, like he, he was yeah. playing us all for hours. Well, in, yeah. And, and like Dylan said, he, he was probably just staying within his limits, knowing mm-hmm. that he could bring the group back after the climb, but he wasn't going to go so hard that he blew himself up on each of those climbs, you know, and, and probably doing that saved, saved a couple matches for when, when the race really mattered. Um, and that's kind of like what I'm talking about here is like, if you just completely blow your wad in the first half of the first three minute climb, even if, even if it was a Hail Mary effort and you were able to stay on the group, like you probably burned so many matches that the next roller you're going to get popped anyways. You know, like you, even, even if you're going to get dropped, like you still got to leave a little bit in the tank so that you have more for the rest of the ride. And, and that's really your only chance of like bringing a group back if you do get dropped. Um, let's talk a little bit about what, what Mike could do in his training to help improve this scenario though. Yeah. Adam, you were saying, you know, maybe he needs to go a little bit easier at the start of the climb. And I, I totally agree with that. But at the same time in his training, I want to say lean into that and do workouts that simulate that. So like peak to fade power intervals. Um, so like doing VO2 and the first, you know, say you're, you, I do think you should do like more five minute VO twos, but say the first 30 seconds of that VO two, you're at that upper end and then you kind of settle in to, um, a more sustainable rate to make that full five minutes, um, and doing more of those. And then, um, a, a workout I really like is a lactate clearance workout, Adam, that, that you kind of turned me on to where you're doing, um, you can do it in any kind of ratio that you want but for you i would say like a minute at vo2 three minutes at threshold and then you know do however long tempo like 10 10 minutes or so um i think that would be another good one yeah yeah and and i think too you know in this case here i mean you know mike's talking about how the the sustained climbs are pretty regularly it sounds like you know three minutes so Mm -hmm. Yes, improving your FTP is going to be good. You know, improving that twenty-minute power is good. But if if you're if you know the critical moment of all these races is a three-minute effort, then you just have to mm-hmm. focus on your your power at that at that effort. Um, maybe you start with you know you could you do a couple different ways. Like Caitlin's talking about, I think those are great for uh, kind of your your ability to buffer that lactate that's really built up after a super hard effort. But then knowing that you have to settle in after that, you know, like Mike, in this case here, like we said, if you if you get over that climb, you don't even know what happens in the group yet. So you need to be prepared not just to stay on the group during the climb, but also whatever happens after that climb. And that's what some of these lactate clearance workouts are good at is you build that lactate really, you know, you, you kind of like pull up the lactate with a you know two to three minute VO2 max effort. And then you kind of like stair step down to settle in at a, you know, basically race pace. Um, and it's really good for just like preparing your body physically and mentally for, for having to settle in after a hard effort. Um, and kind of knowing and, and, and building that confidence that you can sustain power even after a really hard VO2 max effort. Um, so I, I like, I like that kind of workout. I also kind of like the idea of maybe doing like starting at three minute efforts where, you know, let's just say theoretically, you know, your, your three minute powers, 300 Watts, you do five to six of those, maybe twice a week for like the first week, and then try to extend that. See if you can do 300 Watts for three and a half minutes, 300 Watts for, you know, four minutes, um, to try and just extend your, your ability to hold that power. Cause what that's going to allow you to do is 
if it takes 300 watts for three minutes to get over the climb, if you can, if you know you can do 300 watts for five minutes, well, now it's not as big of an issue. You know, you you have that ability to, you know, conserve some of that energy because you're not going to your max at at both ends, the power and the duration. Um, so that could be something else too, like a you know VO two max progression like that, where you're starting at this critical three minutes but trying to extend that. Something that I'm also, thinking of that would be like it kind of is like uh, more focused on the mental capacity of oh, like pushing. I know where you're going with this. I know it is at the Go end ahead. of your at the end of your VO two sprint because you know that like when you're getting popped off that group in a race, you're thinking like I can't go any harder. But if you in your intervals like sprint for the last 15 seconds of your VO2, it's like you're tapping into this mental component of I can go. I'll do that a lot. Like if I do hill repeats like, and I know where the top of the hill is, like the last 15 seconds of the hill, I'll stand up and like jam it out just to, you know, like there's very, I, I was thinking about this actually in a VO2 workout last week. Is there very few moments where you're like going so Oh no, we're losing Drew at the critical moment. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah, we got you. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. Uh, it turns out, yeah, since I'm doing this through my phone, if somebody calls me, it turns off. Um, anyways, like what I was saying was, yeah, it, it's it turns out, like I was thinking right in the middle of my VO2 intervals that like there's only a few moments where you get to the point where you're like you're going so hard that it's like it's dizzy and you're like so I was telling myself in my head like embrace this like. I'm only in this moment for a very short period of time. And so instead of like giving up, I like stood up and made myself go harder and I, I could do it. You know what I mean? And I feel like when I did it, I don't know. I feel like you're just unlocking a little bit of like mental capacity when you do that. Yeah, for sense. sure. So I knew, I knew you were going to bring in the mental side of things, but I didn't think you were going to go there. I thought you were going to say, if he's not, if he doesn't normally do like a fast group ride, you know, not because he needs to, um, you know, learn how to how pack dynamics work better. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying the more experience you have in which you're riding on somebody's wheel and they surge unexpectedly and you have to go with them, then the more experience you have experience you have to draw from when you're in a race and somebody just goes. It's just. Oh, yeah. Like the unpredictability. There's a mental component to that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I've talked about that a lot with my athletes this year is, you know, and that's that's kind of the the importance of leaning on local races or training races or if you have a local fast group ride, you know, yes, it's not going to be as structured as your, you know, typical training or ideal training would look like, but the the benefit you get from that is that you're at the mercy of other people. And, and that's what sometimes makes the effort feel harder than it actually is. Like when, when it's in training and you, you're the one controlling the pace, like you can do 300 watts for three minutes, no problem. But when someone else makes you do 320 watts at the start and then all of a sudden it starts trickling down, you know, it's like you, it's not that it's that much harder and you couldn't do it. It's that it's someone else's dictating that pace. Or in this case, maybe a whole group of people are dictating that pace. And especially if this is something that is a regular occurrence, you know, Mike's probably coming in with the, with the mindset of like, oh, here we go. This is the moment. And like, you're already putting yourself at uh, a disadvantage there mentally. So 
I, I completely agree. It's like the more, the more instances you can put yourself in where you're at the mercy of someone else, uh, the better you're going to be at handling those situations. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Well, anything else to add? I don't think so. Awesome. Drew, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. For sure. I'm glad it worked. Or yeah, hopefully it yeah, worked. All good. All right. Okay. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Yep. See, See you guys. Is riding your bike still fun? Or has it just become a burden that you just kind of slog through to get complete? Come on. You spent all that money on those fancy bikes. You should enjoy riding them, right? We believe working with an ignition coach can help you have fun riding bikes again. Your coach will create a tailor-made training plan that fits in with everything else you have going on in your busy life. Having a coach can help you find that balancing point of goals on the bike versus goals off the bike. And they'll be able to maximize your training so you can get the most out of yourself no matter how busy your life might be. Let's be honest, your enjoyment of cycling is directly correlated with your fitness level. Ignition Coach Co. will help you gain fitness, go fast, and have fun. Sign up today at ignitioncoachco.com.